0: Uh, We're continuing uh, this morning in our series in Ephesians, and uh, we have been spending the last uh, few weeks in uh, Paul's final section in chapter 6, which he discusses uh, the topic of uh, spiritual warfare and the armor which God has uh, provided for uh, his people. And uh, this morning we'll be looking at specifically verse 14, but I will begin reading at verse 10. that you may be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Let's pray. My Father, the ancient imagery of... uh, of belts and uh, breastplates seem so far removed from our experience and yet there is something of enduring importance here for us we pray that you would translate these images into something which is meaningful and truthful for us so that we can better understand how it is that you you provide for us when we are faced with temptation to be able to turn from it and to embrace uh, your calling upon our lives, which is to pursue holiness. To that end, Lord, we confess both our weakness and our need, but we know that uh, your word will give us that which is true and that which is needed. So we ask that you would speak to us this morning and give us ears to hear. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The ancient Greeks uh, told a story about a warrior named Achilles. And uh, his mother had been warned that he would die uh, in battle of a wound. And so in order to prevent that, she, she took him to the river Styx. And uh, she held him by one heel. And she dipped him in the river and pulled him out. And that was uh, reputed to make him in, uh, uh, impenetrable to any sort of wound and that he would uh, he'd be able to serve long and, uh, as a warrior and, uh, and not get killed. The problem was that she held him by the heel, and, uh, and that didn't get dipped in the river. And eventually, if you know the story, uh, it was through that Achilles heel, if you will, that he was ultimately uh, taken down and killed. Nobody is temptation-proof. Uh, even mature Christians have Achilles heels. We, we have those areas of our lives where, uh, where the evil one can get in and, uh, and work havoc. It may be pride. There's none of us here that don't uh, have pride uh, to some degree or other in our lives. may uh, be uh, something as uh, uh, obvious as the love of money. We may love money more than we love a lot of other things. Uh, we may have a quick temper or a critical tongue. Uh, We may be uh, bitter towards people and uh, filled with unforgiveness. Uh, We may be uh, chronically impatient. There are a hundred things that we can embrace. There are a hundred things that we can do and hang on to that are potential Achilles heels for us. us. But how are we to protect ourselves? How are we to deal with those temptations to be bitter or to be uh, uh, greedy or, or any other thing? Well, Paul tells us very clearly in this that it's, it's by taking up the full armor of God. And that seems almost um, crazy to us because the first thing that comes to us is if we just try harder, right? a little more resolve, a little more elbow grease, a little you know better planning, it'll all work out and we'll be able to set those temptations at naught and, uh, and, and escape them. The simple fact of the matter is, as we've been learning in these last few weeks, the devil's a lot smarter than we are. And he knows very well how to get at us. And we looked, for instance, last week at three areas that are so common that there isn't one of us sitting here that doesn't suffer from it all the time. He knows how to get at us. And so we are at a terrible disadvantage if we think that somehow it's incumbent upon us and that we're even capable of... Resisting his temptations and being able to survive the day. Because we can't. Well, Paul's been telling us very clearly in these, uh, in these verses that, that God has supplied us with a spiritual armor that really can, really can stand and really can enable us to resist temptation and continue to live in a way that, that pleases him and honors him. Now confidence, therefore, cannot be in our abilities but has to be placed squarely upon God's provision of an armor that is capable of doing this. This morning we're going to look at the first two things that Paul mentions. First two pieces of armor, that of the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. Strictly speaking, the Roman uh, soldier's belt was was not a piece of armor. All right, when you dressed uh, a Roman soldier, the first thing you put on him was his tunic. And his tunic was really nothing more than a great big square a piece of linen, heavy cloth. And it was basically, you, you cut a, a hole for the neck, and you cut two holes for the arms. And, uh, and he pulled it on and, and, and draped it over himself. And then he put on his belt and his sword and, and some of the other things. Now, the thing was, is that normally he would let that tunic hang loose. You know, it gets air underneath it and all that other stuff. I mean, it was just, I mean, was the way they wore it. But, in those days, hand-to-hand combat was 99% of the way combat went. And to, to be fighting hand-to-hand with a tunic that's kind of floating around like a great big, you know, dress, just doesn't get it. And so what they did was they they had this big leather belt, not just that it, it held their sword, but it was also meant that they would tighten it around their loins, around their middle, and they would tuck in all the extra material from the tunic so that they were, everything was much more concise and compact and it didn't fly out and get in their way and actually enabled them. To fight better. It was, it was a mark of being prepared for battle when a, when a soldier tightened up his belt, tucked in his tunic. It demonstrated that he was ready to go to war. Now, according to Paul's teaching, the Christian's belt, if you will, is truth. Now, commentators have looked at this word truth here, as he uses it, in, uh, in basically in two basic ways. The first is that it's the truth of Scripture. Who God is and what he's done and and who we are and what our role is in relationship to him and to others in this world. The second refers to truth as being truthfulness, sincerity of heart, commitment, that kind of thing. Now, I don't really think that we need to choose between the two because if you look at the teaching of scripture in its broader context about this whole area, what you see is essentially that The truth of who God is and how he relates to us and who we are in relationship to him ultimately should logically produce a truthfulness or sincerity of heart in the person who is in relationship to this God. So one doesn't preclude the other, but in fact one naturally flows out of the other. Now it's significant, I think, that Paul puts this this idea of truth first, as a piece of armor. Because it really suggests that being successful in spiritual warfare requires that an individual have a good grasp of what this book says and what it actually means. Because if we don't have that, then we're open to our own interpretation, our own ideas about what's real, what's true, what's good, what's bad. And in fact we end up very often being wrong. But Paul says truth. Truth is where we have to begin. This is particularly difficult for us as Americans. Right? Because as Americans, we think activity is what really counts. Got to go out and do the thing. But for Christians, it's truth first. And then one acts on the basis of that truth, consistent with that truth, knowledgeable of that truth. Because without truth, without an understanding of who God is, without an understanding of who we are, what he calls us to do and to be, we're lost. And we will be vulnerable. And so we need to read the scriptures. We need to understand what they say. I recall a, a story of a, of a pastor in Scotland, it was a couple centuries ago, he was, had a, a number of illiterate people in his congregation, and his desire was to be able to teach some of them to read. And It was not unusual in those days for people to teach others to read, and they would begin by teaching them to read the Bible. And so he took, uh, he took some of his uh, his congregants and he began to teach them the, the simpler passages in scripture and teaching them how to read at the same time. And, uh, and this one man he was particularly impressed by because he was a farmer who just uh, uh, really began to, to get it. Well, the, the, the pastor was called out of town for, for several months. And, and when he came back, he was interested in how the man had been getting along. So we went to the man's home and, and unfortunately the farmer was out in the fields doing his work. So the pastor sat down with the wife for a couple of minutes and, and part of the conversation he asked uh, whether or not the uh, uh, how the farmer had been getting along in his reading of the scripture if he was still uh, getting something out of it. And she says, oh no, no, he got out of the Bible long ago. He's into the newspapers now. And it suddenly struck the, pa- the pastor that in fact... That's precisely what he did not want to happen. But that that's what all of us have a tendency or temptation to do. Which is to take this book and set it down. And to pick up something less meaningful, less helpful, less informative, and certainly less true. And to bathe ourselves in it. Whether it's computer, TV, hobby, work, family. Not that any of those things are bad in and of themselves. But the moment we supplant the reading of God's word and meditating and reflecting upon that truth, to that degree, we weaken ourselves. You know, if if you take a, a, a thing of hot water and you put a tea bag in it, The longer you let the tea bag sit in that hot water, the longer you let it steep, the stronger the tea. And the same is true for a Christian as he spends time in the Word. The longer he spends in the Word, the more he lets it steep in his life, the stronger he or she will be. But as we said earlier, it's not just a matter of engaging the truth, it's a matter of seeing it lived out in our lives. And Paul, reflecting on this, says essentially, and I think it's his primary meaning here, that what we see happen to us is that we become people who are committed to truthfulness, to an inner sincerity, to a commitment to God and his ways. That's not easy to do in our day, perhaps in any day, because there are so many different voices calling us to be committed here to be committed to doing that to be engaged in something else but what Paul says here is that when we wrap ourselves and gird ourselves in the truth we are willing to set aside every other encumbrance than the things the most important things that God has called us to give ourselves to the committed Christian is just like a committed soldier or committed athlete right right What are committed soldiers and athletes? They are serious about what they're doing. Those guys that took out bin Laden several months ago didn't go in there, just sort of whoop de doo They had been serious about their practice and their warfare for years before they were called upon for that mission. Any athlete who participates in the Olympics, they don't spend the last month getting ready They spend four, six, eight, ten years preparing themselves mentally and physically again and again and again and again. And it's those people who are the most serious who are also the most committed and generally have the greatest effectiveness. What Paul is saying here is that when you and I are committed to the truth of God, when we are serious about it, It has an outworking in our lives that will ultimately make us effective in the things that he has called us to do as well. And one of those is simply, as he says elsewhere in Romans 12, to be living sacrifices. You know, I think it's probably easier to be a living sacrifice than a dead one. No, I mean that the other way. It's easier to be a dead sacrifice, than a living one. If you're a dead sacrifice, you may be persecuted for your faith. The Iranian uh, uh, pastor being held today under the threat of death might die any moment, quite literally. But his pain will be over shortly. But if you and I are living sacrifices, that means it goes on day after day after day after day. That the stress and the strain and the struggle of doing what is right, of facing temptation, of failing, of getting up again, of embracing those things about us that we can't stand, and allowing God's grace to set it right, that isn't easy to do. And to be engaged in that for the long haul, for the period of one's whole life, requires a commitment requires a sustaining grace that is incredibly hard. But what Paul says here is that a truthful life is never an accident. This kind of commitment doesn't just fall out of heaven and change us, but that in fact we must make ourselves willing to surrender ourselves to just purposes such as these. Well, the second piece of the Romans... uh, soldier's equipment was the breastplate, which Paul compares to righteousness. No Roman soldier would have gone into to war, into combat, without a breastplate. Now, the breastplates were two kinds. One, it was either a big piece of very heavy linen or, uh, or leather. And what they would do is they would take piece, pieces of, uh, of uh, hoofs, or, uh, or horns from, uh, from cattle, and shave them up into uh, to pieces and then sew them, so that there were, it was almost like chain mail, only it was leather and, and uh, hooves, if you will. Now, they had that kind, or they had literally metal breastplates, which is what most of us tend to think of, that were taken and beaten and molded to the, to the body. But, I mean, the purpose of, of both kinds was exactly the same. And that was to protect the vital organs, right? The intestines, the heart, the liver, the lungs. Because those are the most vulnerable parts in battle. The biggest target, if you will. Now, if you look at Jewish thinking, Jews really did divide the human body and the human soul into the same two pieces. The heart was considered the mind and the will, and the splanchnon, the guts, right, were the seat of the emotions and feelings. And so between here and here, figuratively speaking, the Jews basically said, this is where you live. It all flows out of here. And so when Paul tells us to put on the breastplate of righteousness, he's basically saying, protect your mind and your heart, your feelings, your will, protect it all by covering yourself in righteousness by being being wrapped in it as if it's armor. Now, like truth, righteousness can be understood in two different ways. The first is imputed righteousness. Paul talks a lot about that in, in Romans, and that simply means that the righteousness of Jesus Christ has been credited to us even though we're sinners, and our sin has been credited to him so that we can have a relationship with God the other kind of righteousness is practical righteousness it's it's, it's living holiness right? and again we do see a very intimate and important relationship between these two there's a a beautiful picture which I've mentioned to you on at least one or two occasions uh, of this very relationship it's found in Zechariah chapter 3 and in that, there's, a, there's this incredible uh, situation going on. Uh, Joshua the high priest is, is standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan is standing over on the side. And he's basically accusing Joshua of not being able to properly fulfill his office as high priest because he's got on all these dirty clothes and this dirty turban. And and Joshua just he, he must feel terrible to have the accusation of the evil one over here recognizes his own condition and he's standing before the angel of the Lord. And the text tells us that the angel intervenes and he says, "Take off his filthy clothes." And these other angels come and they, they, they take off Joshua's filthy clothes and his turban and they, they dress him in these magnificent garments. Clean, sparkling, beautiful. And it's a perfect picture of the imputed righteousness of Christ given to a sinner who doesn't deserve it, who's filthy otherwise, but who was cleansed by that declaration of God, you are now right before me because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Then the very first thing that the angel of God says to Joshua, when that is over, is this. It's a, it's a charge to be holy. Holy. He says, if you will walk in my ways and keep my commandments then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts and I will give you a place among these standing here. In other words, the first thing that God does is he imputes righteousness to Joshua who doesn't deserve it and then he commands him to go and live a life equivalent to the righteousness he's just received. In other words, go live a practically holy life because you are now made righteous in my sight by my grace. Now, if I had to choose between these two meanings, imputed righteousness or practical righteousness, that I think Paul is talking about here, I'd have to choose a second. And I think think logically that has to hold the day. Because quite simply, he's writing to Christians. He's speaking to people who already have the imputed righteousness of Christ. And now he's telling them to put on righteousness. And so he's really simply saying to them, go live holy lives. Do everything you can to please God by the way that you live. And so this breastplate of righteousness that we're called to live is the day-by-day, moment-by-moment commitment and struggle that we have to walk before the Lord As he requires. Not justifying our sin. Not somehow making light of it. Not setting it aside as if it doesn't matter. But taking up his grace and forgiveness given to us when we do. Acknowledging it for what it is. Seeing ourselves for what we are. As uncomplimentary as that usually is. And embracing the fact that God has set his love on us from eternity anyway and there is our hope there is our joy there is our peace now I want to mention just a few few things that we tend to lose if we don't put on this breastplate and the first is joy John's epistle contains many uh, warnings and uh, commandments and he gives them he says so that our joy may be complete. In other words, he links the commandments and doing what God calls us to do with our being happy. Part of the reason, of course, is if you do what God calls you to do, you've got a clear conscience. People with a clear conscience are generally fairly happy. People without a clear conscience, they struggle to be happy. In fact, I would say that many, if not most of our emotional and relational problems are caused by our lack of personal holiness. right? Where are the struggles in your relationships? Lack of forgiveness, pride, selfishness. Greed, you want what you want when you want it now. Your wife, your husband, your children, your boss, your coworker, your friend, your neighbor. take second place. May it ever be so just as long as I'm first and I get what I want and what I think I need. Now, I don't care who you are. If you look at it honestly, you cannot say that that is anything other than a recipe for disaster in human relationships. That the relationships that thrive are the relationships where there is this, this wonderful give and take, this wonderful serving of one another, of a deep love that abides between you and other people, that enables you to serve them joyfully because of your love for God. The second thing that our failure to put on the breastplate of righteousness can do is basically it leads to unfruitfulness. We can be just as busy and full of activities as we want to be. But if we haven't put on righteousness, if we're not really seeking to live holy lives Brethren, our activities are empty. They are fake. They're like an empty (laughs) kernel with no spiritual fruit on the inside. The third thing is that unholy living brings a reproach to God's glory. And that's probably the worst of all. That when we live unfaithfully, people look at us and the first thing that they think of is what, a, what kind of God do you have? Who is he anyway that you can live like that? Paul says that a lack of holiness fails, as he writes to Timothy, to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. In ancient times, before a, a squire was knighted, he had a very interesting thing that he was required to do. He, he would go into the Abbey Chapel. He would lay out all of his armor on the floor. And then he would hold a vigil of prayer, consecrating himself to God all night long before he was knighted the next day and put that armor on. And this is really the only way that we can put on the armor of God. And that is to be committed to him to be prayerful, to be in close relationship with him, constantly, if we possibly can, keeping him in mind, as well as our need for the very things that he provides us for. And here, this table, I don't know if we can be more poignantly reminded of both the truth and the righteousness which God has given to us for protection. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for uh, reminding us of uh, some of the most basic teachings of Scripture concerning uh, truth, holiness. We recognize that uh, often we, uh, we think light of these things. We uh, think we've got, them, uh, we've got them down. We've been Christians a long time. It's nothing new for us. And that's precisely the point. It isn't new. The same things are of critical importance for us if we are to live in this world in a manner pleasing to you. We pray that you would help us uh, to take that as seriously as we possibly can and to do so in a way that honors you. For Christ's sake. Amen.